There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Jonathan Gelbart, former director of development for Basis Schools and current candidate for Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction. We had a great conversation that started with Jonathan's philosophies on the K-12 education system in general, to the challenges and opportunities that a state faces in terms of educating its children, and what parents can do to help support their children's education. You can learn more about Jonathan and his campaign at gelbartforarizona.com. That's G-E-L-B-A-R-T-F-O-R-A-Z.com as well as social media, which you'll find in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to check it out. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review and like us on Facebook. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Jonathan Gelbart, Republican candidate for the Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction. Welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, sorry, do you, and Jonathan, perhaps you know this. At what age do children learn how to tell time? Oh, that's a good question. Four? Is that, are you answering or are you asking another question? I'm guessing. Four? That sounds, that seems about right. I have absolutely no idea. Oh, okay. At all. So, four or five, probably. But you anyway, don't, don't actually have an answer to that? No, I, I, I always try to bust Centauri's chops a little bit, and he's ten minutes late, so... I don't know if it was a failure. Oh, I get you. Right, because you can't tell. That didn't really, like, that didn't make that connection initially, but, but we'll go with it. No. We'll go with it. Sure. Good job. Thank Good you. job. So perhaps we'll circle back on that. So, Some Jonathan, people never learn. What's that? Some people never learn how to read Some an analog clock. Never learn. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Is that even going to be a thing anymore? Knowing that the, the small hand and the short hand, long hand? They still teach that, I'm assuming. Actually, they got rid of the cursive, so who knows? They put it back. Oh, no, so, yeah, we put it back. In your administration, should you win, will children learn how to tell time traditionally? <laughs> I think so. It's going to be a campaign promise. I'm going to hold you to this. And you said that they brought back cursive? They did. They did. It was, uh, it was not part of the national common core standards, but uh, Arizona added it back in last year. Oh, okay. Why was that? Because pe- the people of Arizona said it was important, and the government listened. Okay, good. <laughs> Fair enough. So they were able to influence. Um, I can't remember the last time I actually effectively wrote in cursive. I'm literally writing, can you write in cursive, in cursive to you? How's it going? I write in cursive all the time. It depends on like what I want to have in my notes. I, I switch do. between like regular handwriting and cursive. I've been writing a lot of thank you notes. I do those in cursive. Fair enough. So. I, uh, I, I just had to, to submit a written, like a workbook to somebody, and the gentleman wrote me back when I sent it to him. He's right, like, are, are you a doctor writing prescriptions? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what this is saying. Because I was always the kid that was done with the handwriting exercise first. <laughs> did not serve me well. Anyway, um, well, Jonathan, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. How has the campaign been so far? You're, you're in full swing. In full swing, I'm on the road a lot, put, putting something like 3,000 miles a month on my car, 
I'll be in Tucson this weekend. I'll be up in Apache County in January. So I'm, I'm really trying to get everywhere. Got it. What's been the biggest surprise so far in the campaign? How friendly everybody is and receptive or how mean everybody is? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. You know, I don't, I don't know if there have been a lot of a lot of big surprises yet. You know, I, I knew this was going to be a lot of work. I knew that I was going to run into people with very strong opinions and all sorts of issues on both sides. And, and so it's, it's pretty much matched my expectations so far. Got it. So what was the impetus of you running? Right. Well, I took a look at our, our field of candidates for this office and uh, couldn't really get behind any of them. And so I took a step back and said, wait a minute, maybe I could run for this. And so I spent uh, about four or five weeks going around talking to folks, asking for advice, seeing if this would be a viable thing, and everyone said, yes, you should go for it. So here I am. Wow. Got it. Let's, uh, I, I wonder how often people actually take the time to go and solicit advice. Like, can you see me being successful in this role? Right. I, I would venture to say probably not. But perhaps they do. Anyway. Yeah, I, I definitely... Definitely wanted to get multiple opinions beyond my own. That's <laughs> yeah. a smart thing to do. <laughs> what were you doing before you decided to run? And before this, I was working for Basis Charter Schools. My official title was Director of Charter School Development, so I was helping plan and open all their new campuses. So I helped open 15 of the Basis Charter School campuses that are today serving about 10,000 kids. Managed $250 million of projects to get those done. And uh, one of the projects I worked on was the new Basis Scottsdale campus, which was ranked the number one best high school in the country this year by U.S. News. So that was very exciting. Yeah, I'm kidding. So you think you know you're talking about that? I think so. How have you found, we've, when you have conversations about education, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. Education is one of those things that's impacted everyone, so everyone has a strong opinion about education. So yep. everyone feels like they're expert because they're, yep. I went to school and my kids went to school and right. I, my parents went to school, so I know everything about school. Yep. How have you combated that? Right. Well, I, I don't think there is any combating that. You just kind of have to embrace it. Everyone's got ideas and suggestions and you know they, they have their own experiences from when they were in school, like you said, and then their kids are in school and they see it again from another angle. Or a lot of people have family members or friends who are teachers, so they get that perspective mm -hmm. as well. And so I'm just trying to kind of keep an open mind and listen to everybody and, and try to package everyone's ideas into, into you know, policy solutions. You spoke uh, very briefly about teachers just now, and there's that report that just came out what was two days ago about the mid-year droppings of teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a pandemic in Arizona, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many teachers that are just leaving the profession literally midday, kids yep. in the classroom just saying, I'm done with this. Yep. Per your platform, what are some of the things that you are trying to do to address that? Or do you mm -hmm. think it's as big of a problem as the, the media says it is? Talk to us about that. Right. It's definitely a, a big issue. So there's two pieces to that. You have the, the salary issue where Arizona's teachers are 49th and 50th in the country for salaries based on uh, after adjusting for cost of living. So that's that's part of it. But, but to me, that doesn't really answer the question of why are teachers leaving mid-year? Presumably, they signed a contract and they knew what they were going to be getting paid. So it must be the other point, which is working conditions. You have, you have a lot of, 
you have a lot of issues with, with teachers' working conditions right now. The most common thing you'll hear is teachers feel like they're not being supported by administrators. They have to deal with oftentimes disruptive kids in the classroom. And when they try to discipline the kids, the teachers get in trouble with their, with their bosses. And, and you have a lot of paperwork that they have to do, a lot of regulations to follow. And they basically have to focus on a lot of things other than teaching. And they most likely join the profession because they wanted to teach, not because they love paperwork. So right. what I want to do, the other thing I've been talking about on the on the campaign trail is is working to scale back some of those regulations, some of that micromanagement that often comes from the state, the state level, from the legislature, and, uh, and give teachers more freedom to teach. Who's against that? Who's against that? Uh, good question. I mean, you've got, I mean, I don't think there's an organized uh, group of folks who would say they're against Maybe not that. Purpose, but, but, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's, it's just uh, the road to good intentions, uh, you know, is leaves lots of un, unintended consequences. Right. So, uh, you know, they, the legislature or the state board of education or sometimes local school districts themselves or even schools principals themselves might say that teachers have to do a certain thing or one of the things that was that was kind of a hot topic a year or two ago was was school discipline and disproportionate numbers of suspensions and disciplinary incidents for low-income or minority students and so in response to that a lot of districts changed their policies and there are some reports that are just starting to come out now about the outcomes of those policies where there was a there was a teacher in Michigan. This story just broke this week. A substitute teacher literally got beat up by a student and had to seek medical attention. And the district fired the teacher uh, and, and basically gave the kid a slap on the wrist. So they fired the teacher for hurting the child's hands. Yeah. Not a very funny joke at all. Okay. That was a long answer to your question. No, it's, this is why this is such an important issue and it's such a difficult issue because there's so much nuance and so many sides to it. Mm -hmm. I would just like to go super global and get your thoughts on what the role of schools are. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's too big of a question. What the role of schools are. I, I think it's, it's very important to keep that in mind. I think there's... I mean, everyone has their own kind of philosophy on this. To me, the most important purpose of school is to prepare kids to be well-educated and prosperous citizens, um, productive citizens who are, who are able to, you know, find successful careers, provide for their families, and also have a good enough understanding of our nation's history and form of government that they can participate as be informed participants in the democratic process. Got it. Fair enough. Um, and let's just talk about roles of everybody. Let's talk about what the role of a teacher is in the life of a child, and then talk about what the role of superintendent is, mm -hmm. sort of in general, so what your job may be. Mm -hmm. The role of a teacher is, is something that's had a lot of focus on it lately. You have, you know, teachers are the most have the most impact on students educational outcomes apart from family 
uh, you know, after the family teachers are the number one. And so that's why it's so important to get high quality teachers here to Arizona and make sure that they stay and don't leave in the middle of the year. So, so you know, a teacher often ends up playing a surrogate parent role, you know, especially in the younger grades. If you talk to any kindergarten, first grade, second grade teacher, they're not just teachers. They're counselors and nurses and, you know, they, they sure. have multiple hats that they wear every day. And, uh, and so that's you know, a pretty all-encompassing role, really. The state superintendent role is very, uh, I think a lot of people don't, don't realize how limited the scope of the role actually is. The state superintendent has to run the state department of education and then has a seat on the state board of education. And that's pretty much it. Everything else beyond that is just the informal power of the role and, the, and what you call the bully pulpit. Uh, so running the State Department of Education is managing the flow of funds to all the schools, all public schools in the state, both state and federal funds. That's about $5 billion a year. Uh, and beyond that, you're you know, managing a, a large team uh, at the at the department, you're managing student data systems. Uh, you're managing federal compliance with Title One and free and reduced lunch issues, and all these kinds of things. So it's it's really an administrative role there at the department. The state board, you're you're only one vote out of eleven people on the state board. All the the other ten are appointed by the governor, and the state board is the group that sets the rules for schools, including curriculum standards. So there's 10 people that are appointed by the governor. Mm -hmm. Does that turn over every time there's a new governor? Probably. Uh, yeah, there's, there, I mean, it doesn't all, it doesn't usually turn over immediately, but, but usually over time, you know, you'll have, you'll have change. That's interesting. What are your thoughts on, um, I'm curious to know from your standpoint and in this position, should you get it? I sat on the uh, the Educator Retention and Recruitment Task Force for ADE for about a year. So it galvanized educators, business folks, community leaders around this problem of how do we get teachers here, how do we keep them, right? And after a year of convening and meeting and everything else, really not, I can't tell you what the ultimate outcome was. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel like we can effectively get those groups together to make a difference in public education rather than convening people just to convene people to talk? Mm -hmm. I think that's a big, that's a big issue, a big problem. Uh, I mean, you have, you have at the other end of the scale, oftentimes governments criticize for not bringing enough people into the process mm -hmm. to talk about a given policy change or idea. But then you, you also have the problem you're talking about where you're taking up the time of often very smart, influential, busy people to come in and join these these task forces, and and you meet sometimes for years, and at the end of it, you might have no actionable outcome, right. or you have a report that's this nice, beautiful packaged report that no one ever reads. So, you know, I I would love to institute a process where you have a defined required set of outcomes for every kind of group and task force. It's just like whenever you have a meeting, it's very easy to have unproductive meetings that don't lead anywhere. But if you if you set up a process and a culture where every meeting has an objective and the participants very carefully selected and you limit your time and you set up these parameters, uh, you can have a lot, a lot more impact. Good. 
So a failing school, and I admit that I have no idea that we have teachers that are just up and quitting midway through the year and <laughs> see you later. Uh, and you have schools that, that, are, that are failing and closing. And then you have the basic system, which is the absolute opposite of that, wildly mm -hmm. successful, the number one high school or school in the country. Mm -hmm. Does basis operate outside of the pure purview of the system that we're talking about? Or do they fall under the superintendent's scope of authority? Right. So the charter schools in Arizona are regulated by the Arizona State Board for Charter Schools. Uh, and the superintendent is a member of that board. So basis, you know, all charter schools are public schools, are a form of public education. And so they are regulated by the state. Kids have to take the same standardized tests. Uh, they have to follow the same regulations for special education, English language learners, all this kind of stuff. So, but they have fewer regulations than the districts do. Uh, they are able to hire uncertified teachers. For example, BASIS tends to hire people who are experts in their fields, people with math degrees and science degrees and history degrees instead of people with education degrees. And that's a big part of, of their model. Um, so they're able to do that. They have more freedom on procurement policies. They have uh, more freedom on, on a couple of other things that, uh, that allow them to be more flexible. And one of the things I've been talking about in the campaign is I would love to see districts have some of those same types of uh, flexibilities. I think that's that would be that would be great. That would be useful and helpful. Uh, in Colorado, they have a model called innovation schools, which are kind of a hybrid where district schools can basically petition the state for exemption or waivers from certain state laws if they want to try something new and innovative. In, in Colorado, they have, you know, collective bargaining with teachers unions and teacher tenure and some of these other things that we don't have in Arizona, but but under the innovation schools model, they're able to request waivers from that. So uh, all that is a long way to say that yes, basis is part of the the public system, but but they do things a little bit differently. They hire these expert teachers, they have they have very high expectations for their, their kids. They have uh, an accelerated curriculum that's several years ahead of, of where most schools operate. Um, and most importantly, I think they, they create, and this is not, this is something any school could do, but, but they create a culture of independence and self-motivation uh, for the kids. They encourage kids to take responsibility for their own learning. Kids understand that it's ultimately up to them to, you know, keep track of whether they're learning, if they need to go ask the teacher for more help, if they need to uh, set up set up a meeting with the teachers. You know, the, the basis sets it up so the kids have to plan that and schedule that. So, from my perspective, the more that you can help somebody or empower them to be a self-manager and be an independent anything, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's better. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really, from my life experience and my opinion is that if we're able to do that in every aspect of our lives, mm -hmm. at the company level, we have an adult be more of a self-manager, then it's better, and certainly a child, mm -hmm. it's going to get better results. And certainly BASIS is proving that because they are getting excellent results. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a charter school versus a public school because there's plenty of charter schools that fail. Right. <clears throat> um, charter versus district because they're both public. They're both public. Or traditional public yes, schools. Yes, yes. Charter versus district schools. Um, 
what pushback, so this just says to me, well, why not try to, and that's what you're maybe talking about doing, take some of the lessons that successful charters have done and then bring that to the traditional schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the bureaucracy that's already in place mm -hmm. is probably fighting against that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So the the whole idea of charter schools when they first came to Arizona twenty some years ago was let's let's let people open these schools that are going to do things differently, and then the best results of that, the the best success stories, can then kind of share their lessons learned with the districts. That was the original intention of charter schools, and. And you see that happening here to, to a certain extent. Um, out in Chandler, for example, the district has added some very advanced math courses like differential equations uh, in order to compete with BASIS that was offering those types of courses. And so the, the other piece of this, of, the, of the, ed, the charter school model, is injecting some competition into the school system. So how do you fight bureaucracy? You one way to do it is you create market incentives that basically force the districts to change the way they're doing. Otherwise, they're going to lose their customers, their, their students. And, and so you've, you've seen districts start to respond to that, react to that. Tucson Unified School District has lost tens of thousands of students uh, in the last decade, decade or so. And, and they are you know, and most of those kids are either going to charter schools or other school districts. And because of that, the new superintendent and Tucson Unified is, is kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, how do we change what we're doing to create a better product and offer better education to these kids? And just because we've done things a certain way for 30 years doesn't mean we should keep doing that or that we even can keep doing that. That's quite the opposite, right? Right. One of, the, um, one of the interesting things that I've learned in the last couple of weeks is that the majority of kids, so um, I'd love to get your take because while you're very pro-charter and I love charter, I think they have a great place, the majority of kids will at some point touch a traditional K-12 school in mm -hmm. their lifetime. So while charters are great and they've been exemplars in Arizona, most kids will be in a traditional public school. So mm -hmm. how do we not only focus on the bright spots that are basis and great hearts, but say, all right, how are we going to actually educate the masses? So mm -hmm. I'd love your thoughts on how do you bring that innovation, not even just innovation or best practices, but what are we going to do about most kids? Mm -hmm. 100%. I've, I've, been, I've been saying some similar things on the, on the stump, so to speak. You've got about 85% of kids in Arizona go to traditional district schools. And so if you want to move the needle on Arizona's education system, You've got to help those kids, and, and uh, you've, you've really got to make sure that, that you're serving them. I mean, one of the things I've said to folks is, why don't we just set a goal of making every school a great school? Every neighborhood school should be a great school. That's awesome. Period. You know, because school choice isn't much of a choice if you only have bad options to pick from. Let's make every option a good option, and then you really have a great system. And, of course, that's easier said than done. But, but I, I definitely don't think that you can ignore the district schools or that, that charter schools are 100% the solution to everything. Uh, I think, again, that's, that's why I've been looking at how do you scale back some of these 
some of these regulations that are making it more difficult than it needs to be for districts to launch new pilot programs and try innovative new things to try to figure out how we're going to serve the kids better. And you look at our look at our state test scores, you've got less than half of kids in high school testing proficient in English and math. In eighth grade, it's a quarter of kids testing proficient in math. Three out of four are below grade level. And so it's it's a massive it's amount. Unreal. Yeah, it is unreal. And, and so it's a massive amount of work that needs to be done. And, and we need to be able to kind of try everything to figure out uh, what's going to help the best. You have a magic wand. You wave it. That's how These it regulations would go away. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't have my, my magic wand checklist in front of me. Um, you know, there's a couple things I would probably do. There's a couple things I would do. I, I think if, you, if I had a magic wand and unlimited money, uh, you, can, you can set up, I think, what the basis model for the elementary school is, has been proven to be very effective. What they do in their elementary schools is they have subject experts, again, math degree, science degree holders that are teaching the little kids. But every one of those teachers is paired with a uh, what's called a learning expert teacher who is an expert in pedagogy and is usually a traditional certified teacher. And they kind of team teach. And, and that's been a very, very effective model. It's, it's very expensive, but it's very effective because you have this person who can kind of share their passion for their subject with the kids. And at the same time, you have someone in the classroom who can help explain things more to the kids if they need more help or more intervention they can work in small groups and kind of uh, make a, a more interactive classroom environment so I think that would really help uh, beyond that I, I think we you know if I if I really had a magic wand we need to make teaching a high status profession it needs to become a a respected high status profession if we're going to get the best people to become teachers and unfortunately we're a long way from that so those are those are probably a couple things I would focus on from a position standpoint it's really interesting that Arizona this um, this position position is elected whereas Nevada it's appointed mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on I'm just curious to see how do you how do you see you working with your counterparts nationwide or would they just right. have very different systems that they're working within well, I think the the schools, the department—I mean, the systems, the departments of education are pretty similar to each other. But you're right; the superintendents are kind of—it's a mix. You've got some people who are directly elected in a partisan election, like Arizona. You have some states that elect this position in a nonpartisan election. You have some people where it's appointed by the governor, and some where it's appointed by the state board of education. Wow. So here we have an elected superintendent and an appointed state board. Some states like Colorado have, have state board elections. And so there's really pros and cons to every model. Um, I, don't, I don't really see it affecting the day-to-day. The -day. Uh, you know, it might, you know, it probably affects the type of person who gets into this position. But once you're there, you have to manage the same federal programs that everyone's got to manage. You have the same kind of outcomes you're working on. And, so I, I, don't, I don't see it changing here. There's occasional talk of let's do a constitutional amendment to make this position appointed by the governor here in Arizona. 
but the, the public doesn't tend to like that idea. They like having this direct control, such as it is, over their public school system. And that certainly makes sense to me, what the people elect. But even if somebody did get elected, it's tough to make a lot of changes in four years. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it is. I mean, it's it's difficult to get changes in, in four years. That's why I'm, I'm planning to be a two-term superintendent. There is a there is a term limit in the Arizona Constitution of two terms. But in eight years, you can get a lot done. You can mm-hmm. lay a really strong foundation in those first four years and start to change things. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the eighth year, I mean, if you've got a long-term plan, and that's what I think we need in Arizona is basically a 10-year plan of how we're going to turn the education system around, you can really make a lot of progress in eight years. Yeah, I think you could probably do exactly what you just said. Um, Tim Ferriss, who probably everybody's familiar with, he's got a, a new podcast out called Tribe of Mentors, and he's talking about lots of good questions that he asked everybody that he interviewed, and one of them was, what would this look like if it were easy? So to think about, what would this really look like if it were easy? And in my mind, from my perspective, all these problems would probably be solved if parents took a more active role. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not a very popular thing or, or practical, but I think that if my kid beat up a teacher, there's no way in the world that I would allow that teacher to be disciplined for my kid beating the teacher up. That's mm-hmm. absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I don't, thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, parent involvement is, is very important. You see, there's, you know, studies all the time point to, point to the importance of parent involvement and student success. But I think a lot of times it doesn't even have to be active involvement. It doesn't have to be parents going to every parent-teacher conference and every concert and every soccer game. It can just be uh, a culture at home of high expectations for education. You know, uh, sometimes this conversation is framed in terms of income levels of high-income families expect X out of their kids and low-income families expect Y out of their kids. I don't think it's that simple. You know, I've heard lots of stories of people who you know, grew up in, in lower income homes and, uh, and their parents were busy, you know, working 80 hours a week in, in blue collar jobs, but they knew that if they got bad grades, they were going to hear for it at home. Um, and no matter what happened, it was still their job and their responsibility to, to do well in school. And, uh, I think that's a big part of it. When parents don't value education or don't signal to their children that they value education, that's where I see the biggest problems. Can you tell us um, a little bit more about, and um, just kind of going off what George said, what does the data actually show? So I know parents, um, teacher, but what are some of the other data points that show this is what, these are the leading indicators for academic success in students? Right. Teacher quality is a big one. Family involvement, parent involvement is a big one. Principal quality is, I think, the next biggest one. The, the quality of, of your school leader makes a huge difference. Uh, I mean, relatively huge and statistical, you know. But you, you have 
the principals have a lot of impact, a lot of influence in the school culture and the kinds of teachers they hire in the environment, the professional environment they create for the teachers, as well as the learning environment for the students. And so that's why you have some folks working on uh, leadership initiatives. We have one that's starting up here in Arizona, uh, Leadership Academy for, for principals, where the best principals can kind of teach others what they've done right and how they can be great principals. It's a really difficult job. I mean, you've got some of these high school principals are managing thousands of kids and hundreds of students. And, you know, they're managing everything from your traditional academics to athletics to food service and transportation and sometimes career technical offerings like welding and construction and you know things like that happening on the same campus that have safety concerns and liability concerns attached to them. Um, so it's, it's, you know, especially a high school principal, but really all principals are, are basically CEOs mm -hmm. and not everyone can be a CEO. It's a, it's a hard job. And so you need to make sure that, that you've got good people in those positions. That makes sense to me. It's like any organization, if you have alignment throughout the leader of the organization, your middle manager, for lack of a better term, would be the teacher, mm -hmm. and then the employees would be the students. Right. But then take that one step further, the parent as well. Everybody values education. Everybody values showing up every day and doing your best mm -hmm. and having a positive attitude about everything, mm -hmm. moving in the right direction. I would have to think that that's going to result in a pretty good, pretty good result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a viral video going around of a teacher or a principal originally from New Zealand who's who's become a principal in Virginia and uh, he's he's very loud and he you know stands on tables in the cafeteria and gives inspirational speeches to the kids and it's kind of a fun video if you google for it I will totally check that out um, it's any kind of any kind of organization we had a gentleman named Louis Alfon on the podcast talking about um, purpose um, purpose and execution so making sure that the purpose is clear, which is what you will do should you mm -hmm. be elected, is mm -hmm. set the agenda and the tone for the school system and then mm -hmm. hope that, that the district level and, and all the organizations take it and run with it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of school districts in Arizona? There are. There's more than 200. Why is that? So why is that? Is it, It's a legacy of the kind of agricultural days of Arizona when farmers in a certain neighborhood pooled their resources to build a school and hire a teacher for their kids. And um, over time, a lot of those districts have just stayed isolated rather than combining with other districts. So there's a lot of talk about that of, you know, why are we doing it this way? If we combine districts, couldn't we save on administrative costs? You know, if you've got 200 districts, that means you've got to have 200 superintendents and 200 school boards. And you know, it's hard to find 200 times four or more board members to fill all those seats and 200 superintendents. Those, you know, superintendents is a very difficult job too. So, so that's a, that's a topic that I've gotten asked about a lot. And there was a proposal to combine a lot of the districts about 10 years ago and it was voted down. Um, I think a lot of that was because of the, the details of the plan uh, could have been better, there could have been better outreach to the community, but be because of the failure of that effort, it's still kind of a political hot potato, and and I don't know if it's going to change anytime soon. 
if I had to focus on one thing, I would love to see every district be a K-12 district. In Arizona, you have actually three different kinds of school districts. You have elementary school districts, high school districts, and unified districts that are K-12. And when you have a unified K-12 district, you can, you can set goals for your 12th graders graduating from high school and work backwards from that all the way to kindergarten and plan out your whole system. Versus if you're a high school district, you're getting all these kids in ninth grade that you've never seen before, that you've never been able to work with before, and, so, and you just kind of have to make do. Um, and Phoenix Union, for example, I think has 13 different elementary school districts that feed into Phoenix Union. So that's 13 different curriculum sequences and learning cultures and environments. And it's it just makes it really hard for the high school districts to work with. So I would, I would love to find a way to get every district a K-12 district. One of the uh, things that, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I need to know your thoughts on funding. Mm-hmm. So Arizona, if you benchmark against even say the five poorest states, we sp- still spend the least amount per uh, per capita GDP on education. Mm-hmm. In your role, what can you do or what are your thoughts on getting our elected officials and business folks to, to agree that we have to put more money behind this? Right. Well, if I had my magic wand, right. this is where I'd use it. Pull that back out. <laughs> so... The, the state superintendent doesn't have much right. of any direct control. So it goes back to the bully pulpit um, of, of how, can you, how can you talk to people and build coalitions like you're talking about. So I've been meeting with legislators already to make sure that I have working relationships with them. Um, you know, many of them, I, I've lost count of how many I've met with because, because they're, they're the ones who, who really set the policy along with the governor on, you know, where are we getting our revenue and how much are we able to spend on education. Um, I think that the you, you have the Prop 301 education sales tax that's expiring in 2021. We absolutely need to continue that and extend that and renew that. Um, in terms of finding additional new revenue beyond that, you know, I, I'm looking forward to working with, with the governor's folks in the legislature to, to find a solution to that. There's a lot of ideas floating around out there. There's a group of business leaders who are suggesting an increase in Prop 301 all the way to from the current 0.6 cents all the way to one and a half cents. You've got some people suggesting a soda tax. You've got some people suggesting all these different things. And um, you know, I'm not I'm not really taking an official position on those right now because it's all in so much mm-hmm. flux, but I'll be t- look, taking a very careful look at all of that. So we are towards or at the bottom of the percentage of the GDP that Arizona takes in that we put towards schools. Right, or towards public education. Towards to be clear, Arizona is at the bottom of every indicator of public education. So how much we spend, teachers, everything. We're all of it. pretty much the worst state. Got it. Yeah, I, I, Children are not our future. No, not in Arizona. <laughs> I don't, not right now. I don't have the, the figures in front of me, but yeah, there's a lot of ways to measure it. Of what... Uh, how much of your state's personal income are you spending on education? How much of the state's per capita GDP are you spending? What percentage of the state budget goes to education? And we're, we're not at the bottom of all of those. Uh, we're at the bottom of per pupil spending in dollar amounts. Um, but, you know, relatively speaking, 
we're, we're not at the bottom of some of the others. We have it's something like 46% of the state budget goes toward toward uh, K-12 education. That's a pretty big number. It is. It is. It, it used to be even higher than that back in the 60s, but uh, but it's still it's still a big big chunk. Uh, the this the mnemonic is that state budgets educate, medicate, and incarcerate. So those are the three biggest expenses of every single state budget. Interesting. Incarceration piece. Okay, so I'm going to go back to this just because it makes zero sense to me. We have 200 school districts. Yes. <laughs> and do you know what the average superintendent makes? Is that is that a probably that's available somewhere? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it varies by district, but it's often quite high. So each, each one has a CEO, a CFO, an HR. That, Accounting, um, legal. We're trying to find more money to give the students. I think that we just identified. My mom's going to listen to this and call me because she's a teacher. Tell me how stupid I am, but it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, so you have... You know, to the extent you can create economies of scale, you can save dollars. But a lot of times, when you combine districts, you, there, there have been some economic studies done of this. You don't end up saving as much money as you might expect because you know, you're, unless your ratio of employees to students goes down, then you still, need all, those you still need all those positions. Exactly. So, meh. Were those studies done by school districts in Arizona? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, as always, the devil's in the details. You've also got different property tax rates in different districts, different debt levels, bonds, and all this kind of stuff that gets really tricky. Uh, salary schedules, when you talk about combining an elementary school district with a high school district, oftentimes they have different salary schedules, and if you try to unify them, it can create big budget impacts. So it's uh, there's I think there's potential there, but it's it's tricky. There's a lot of work that would need to be done. Right. Okay. So the awareness to action piece, I appreciate this has been an awesome conversation so far. So you are elected and you take office tomorrow. What what do you start with? What does that look like? Right. So number one is is getting the Department of Education up and running efficiently and effectively. Uh, I've got a, a reorg kind of that I've been planning that I think would be really helpful. I've run it past several uh, former high level employees of the department, and and they've all said that that it was a good idea that that they thought it would help. Um, just creating more uh, kind of streamlined levels of reporting or lines of reporting, uh, getting people who work on similar issues to work in the same department instead of all being kind of on their own island, and a couple other things like that. I want to build a team that I can bring with me uh, right from the get-go. That's one of the things I've been talking about, too, is uh, I really want to get a running start. You know, I, I can't wait until after election day to start a listening tour of trying to figure out what to do for Arizona education or figuring out what I'm going to do to run the department. That's all best start now. So I'm, so I'm doing that now. Um, and, and I want to, you know, the number one thing is, is getting the department running properly because that's, that's the number one responsibility of the position. Uh, second thing is, is then setting up processes to track how well the department is doing school feedback surveys, parent feedback surveys, student feedback surveys, employee feedback surveys at the department. 
all those things used to exist. They no longer exist, and we need to bring them back, and we need to track it, and we need to take those results seriously. We need to have open lines of communication to the public, you know, just a, something as simple as a comment box, suggestion box, especially for kids. I, you know, they're the ones who are there every day. I, I think they would have some valuable things to say. And so it, that does exist in a certain form today, but I, I think there's a way to make it more, uh, you know, easier for people to participate. More pizza. <laughs> so let's get things done. <laughs> all of that, all of that would probably take the whole first year. Um, running parallel with that would be would be really working to build those strong relationships with other stakeholders, like I've been talking about. Uh, working with the the legislature and the governor's office. That that's uh, that's going to be an ongoing process to make sure that those lines of communication remain open. I would love to be a a bridge between them and the schools as much as they need a connector. Uh, you know, I've, I've met many, many superintendents and, and district leaders and school leaders already over the course of this campaign. And, you know, a lot of them now feel comfortable calling me or vice versa if they need anything or if I need anything. And, and to the extent I can leverage those relationships, I, I would love to do that uh, as well. Excellent. And advice to parents who have kids that are um, in school right now, at, at any age, what would you have them do to help their kids perform optimally? I would say make sure that you have high expectations for your kids. Make sure that you understand what your schools, what your kids' schools are teaching them of whether they're, whether your kids are being challenged. I think a lot of times kids are not being challenged. The, you know, when you've got a room full of 30 kids, a lot of the time the, the level of instruction has to follow the slowest kid. And, you know, there's a reason for that. But if your kid is not the slowest one in the class, you've got you've to gotta push as a parent to make sure that your kid is reaching their full potential. So maintaining those high expectations in and out of school I would say are the most important things parents can do. And it doesn't have to, you know, you don't necessarily have to expect all the learning to happen inside school either. You know, kids through the internet, you can learn you can learn pretty much anything on Wikipedia these days. Uh, and and so, pretty much. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you do think that your kid is capable of doing more than they're getting in school, set them up with, with, uh, other things online. You've got Khan Academy where they can do advanced math in a, in a really fun, interactive way. Uh, this is just one example. Immense resources available. When you talk about high expectations, do you mean get all A's? Do you mean study habits? What specifically do you mean? Right. So that's a good, good clarification. So I think it definitely doesn't have to be all A's. I think the the focus on grades actually has a lot of negative effects you know back in the days of the of the founding fathers actually there were no grades even in college it was just all about the learning and, and grades came later and so what happens when you have grades is the focus in school becomes how do i give the teacher exactly what they want how do i game the system to get an a with the least amount of work right. so and then on top of that, you have the issue of 
preventing kids from experiencing failure. I think failure is an important learning experience, but if you have to get all A's out all the time, you, there's no room for failure there. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's important for kids to kind of push themselves to the limit and see how far they can go without being afraid of something being you know, permanently impacting their future prospects. So um, I guess that's, that's what I have to say on that. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Is it when you were talking about in, everything you said makes makes a lot of sense to me. Um, talking about how oftentimes the pace of, of learning is predicated on the slowest learner, mm -hmm. and that's a necessary thing, I suppose, but a terrible thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And also, we have such a tendency to focus on where I'm being deficient. Mm -hmm. If I'm getting all A's in the arts or all A's in math, and I, I'm not good at art. It doesn't mean necessarily that I should just focus on art, right? Mm -hmm. And beat myself over up over that. Right. It's like it's accentuating what I'm really good at versus focusing on what I'm bad at. Mm -hmm. And I don't expect you to solve that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it that that does get to a philosophical debate though about schools, right? Is for a kid to get all A's, they have to be a generalist. They have to be pretty good at everything. Yeah. But if you've got a kid who's an expert in art and doesn't understand math, or vice versa. They're going to do just fine in their life, but in school, they're going to get bad grades. And so that's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. But right. Excellent. So, Tari, what have we forgotten to talk about? He answered all my questions. Thank you so much. Jonathan, Thank what you. else would you like to share? Where can people find out more about you? Right. So my last name, for those who need to spell it to type in my website, is is like Gilbert, but spelled differently, G-E-L-B-A-R-T. So my website is gelbart4az.com. You can type number four or F-O-R. They'll both get you there. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. If you have ideas for me, suggestions, complaints, whatever it may be, I'm all ears. Uh, I would love to engage with, with anyone. What uh, is the election? The primary election is August 28th, 2018. The general is in November, so it's the same ballot as the governor and the U.S. Senate and all the big races next year. Excellent. And uh, one other thing I'll mention is if you are registered as an independent or no party preference, you can still vote in the primary. You just have to request a Republican ballot to vote for me. So if you're an independent, please do that. Yeah, excellent. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for your time, and best of luck with your campaign, and best of luck in the primary, and hopefully the election as well. Thank you. So, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. If you like what you heard, please hit like, subscribe to the show, and also share it on social media with somebody that you think would benefit from it as well, somebody who's passionate about learning about education and making a difference. As always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.